0: Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan, and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy, and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the wake of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. So please bear with us if there are any issues with sound quality. The outbreak of the novel coronavirus, officially named COVID-19, has brought the world to a grinding halt. Governments across the world have ordered people to immediately adopt social distancing, to stay away from workplaces, educational institutions, businesses have been asked to shut down, all in order to contain this contagion. Now, this in turn has severely affected economies across the world, with global trade and markets taking a severe downturn, particularly in the wake of mass panic selling in the financial markets. In this episode of Interpreting India, we want to understand the COVID-19's economic impact, both globally, as well as its consequences for India. Joining me today is my colleague, Suyash Rai. Suyash is a fellow at Carnegie India, and his research focuses on the political economy of economic reforms and the performance of public institutions in India. Those of you who follow us regularly uh, will know that Suyash is a very well-known commentator on economic and political economy issues uh, in India. Suyash, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Srinath. Suyash, I want to start by talking a little bit about the bigger picture. The coronavirus crisis has obviously been a major global health crisis, but it's also been a major shock to the global economy. Uh, We've seen particularly Developing markets taking a major hit in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Countries across Europe, Britain, the United States, Japan, China have announced major programs of various kinds of economic stimulus to keep their economies on some kind of life support while they grapple with this crisis. And of course, the problem of the economic crisis is kind of compounded in some ways by the energy crisis that is also concurrently playing out. There is a kind of an oil war going on between Russia and Saudi Arabia, which has led to a steep drop in oil prices. Uh, That may be good news for some countries like India, but it has other kinds of consequences for the global economy. I was wondering if you could begin by getting your sense of what kind of a shock do you think the novel coronavirus has been to the global economy, and we can then get down to India?
1: So this crisis is a totally, uh, I mean, a global crisis. So although it began in China, which is the main manufacturing hub for the world, and started with uh, much more of a supply shock to begin with because large parts of China had to be shut down for some time so that they could deal with this uh, crisis. And at that time, the countries to which China exports were not as uh, I mean, significantly affected. But now it's spread uh, widely. It's spread the biggest markets of the world, Europe, United States. <laughs> it's spreading to, uh, it's spread to Aust- Australia. It's spreading to Africa and, of course, uh, much of Asia also. South America has also been affected. So it's a truly global crisis. And even though, as I said, initially it was a China-based shock, it was a primarily supply shock for China, now there's a big demand <laughs> side to it. Uh, globally, uh, there is a move to try and deal with this crisis by dealing with, by reducing the pace at which it, the virus transmits. In that process, there is a lot of emphasis on slowing down economic activity to lock cities down, to uh, basically dissuade people from coming out in public for various purposes, but also economic activities. And in that process, overall consumption is also dropping significantly and all of this is leading to a big uh, increase in uncertainty because uh, we don't know much about how this virus is going to behave, how you're going to deal with it in the next few months. We are learning every day but uh, we are not yet in a situation where we can say that we can predict what's going to happen six months from now, uh, let alone a year or two from now. So in that environment there's going to be a kind of a hunkering down by Uh, investors. uh, There will be a certain amount of trade uh, decline also will happen at this time. And one of the first uh, set of indicators you've got is from China. So China has reported some advanced numbers for the first quarter of this year, and it's looking very bad. It's the worst indicators since uh, its economic boom began in the late 70s. So we can take, look at that and then try to see what other countries, for, what will happen to Italy, for example, US, UK, all these countries which are grappling with it. And it's going to affect all of us uh, in a very big way because we are all uh, very deeply integrated in the global economy through trade and financial flows and also the you know, flow of people. So, for example, India depends a lot on IT exports and our people go and work physically in many of these Western countries and other countries. And all of that is getting affected right now.
0: And this combination of a supply shock as well as a demand shock, uh, has elicited a response which seems to be a very accelerated version of the 2008 global financial crisis playbook. So countries have really kickstarted large-scale QE or bond purchasing programs. you know they're making liquidity available uh, by central banks to markets at uh, extraordinary numbers. But do you think the scale of actions which have been taken, even though they are very large, is strong enough to stem the uncertainty that surrounds this crisis?
1: So uh, I think in uh, in your community of security studies, there is some saying that armies fight the last war. So I think it's somewhat true of economic policy also. Uh, policymakers often are trying to fight by the last war or by the instruments that they had perfected in the last previous war. Uh, but we have to be very mindful of the nature of this crisis. Uh, it's primarily a public health crisis, which is uh, uh, having economic consequences. It's not the kind of economic crisis we saw in 2008, 9. So, for example, there is a reason why you are uh, seeing factories shut down. It has nothing to do with the productivity of the factories or the demand or the inherent dem- demand for the goods that it produces. It's just the way the crisis, uh, the virus is transmitting you are trying to slow it down, you're trying to save lives, you're trying to reduce the long-term mobility that will come out of this uh, for the people who will be affected by it. In the process, you are seeing a, a slowdown in economic activity. And both the demand and the supply shock are significantly a consequence, not fully. So there is an uncertainty angle to it, but significantly a consequence of the world trying to deal with this public health problem primarily. So yes, as a consequence, because of the increase uncertainty, there is a freeze in the market. So liquidity supply can help, but it will help only to the extent liquidity is a problem. But the underlying issues will still have to be dealt with. And primarily, the public health problem will have to be solved i mean as soon as possible we'll have to figure out how to deal with it for the economic uh, consequences to ameliorate and then we can also think about how the economic consequences can be mitigated and uh, the world economy can start growing again as of now just providing liquidity because it's not the kind of financial crisis we saw last time was a financial crisis people didn't know who who should lend to whom on what terms central banks came in in a big way and, and provided liquidity to the whole, to the whole world i mean large part of the world but this crisis is very much a real economy crisis. Real ways in which people build stuff, uh, sell it, use it, is all getting affected because of the public health, nature of the public health crisis. And we have to deal with it in its own terms.
0: No, I agree with you that this is a public health crisis in the first instance, that this is a crisis which affects the real economy. But surely uh, there are very significant financial consequences as well, right? I mean, one of the reasons we've seen this extraordinary sell-off, even in the safest quality of assets like U.S. Treasury bonds yeah, yeah. the last couple of weeks, is primarily because people want cash. And the only way you can get cash is by liquidating whatever you know good assets that you have at hand. And that cash crunch is happening because suppliers are not getting uh, money from other downstream buyers and vice versa. So I think you know the, the financial economy is simply a bellwether for what is going on yeah, in the real economy definitely. in this
1: case. And on that, as I said earlier also, that The central banks are providing liquidity, so people who have assets, but they want to liquidate it and turn it into cash so that they can uh, pay whoever they need to pay, or they want to sit on that cash or put it in some other avenue they think is safe right now, they they should continue doing that. But the underlying crisis will have to be dealt with, as I said, in its own terms, and it will require dealing with the economics of coronavirus itself. So uh, how do you deal with it while minimizing the economic cost of the virus?
0: That's true. And in the meanwhile, it seems that governments, uh, particularly in the West, are looking at instruments or ways of providing relief to the people, which are quite unconventional. You know, you had, for instance, Germany, which is otherwise such a fiscally conservative country, now agreeing to roll out this program of support. Uh, You know, even as we are speaking, the U.S. Congress is debating a bill which is talking about giving Ten thousand dollars per head, uh, to per household, uh, you know, in order to do this. So, you know, talk of helicopter money has once again made an appearance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so in a sense, even the way that people are thinking about the urgency of the problem and the kinds of instruments that might need to be deployed seems somewhat different and perhaps even more urgent than during the global financial crisis.
1: Yeah, and and that that aspect of the response, which is still so part of the word actually is still under consideration is uh, to do with the mitigation of the consequences of the crisis and also to do with how uh, we can cope with the crisis. So, uh, for example, the idea of giving people some minimum income for some time to sustain themselves is not just tied with people I mean who will lose their jobs and not have economic opportunity for some time, but also by creating opportunities so that they can uh, stay at home and not step out and they can actually uh, practically... Do what is called social distancing, so they're linking it right now to the problem they're, they're they're facing, and I think that part is more more interesting. And to some extent, the kind of fiscal transfers and all we talked about overlap with the public health response as well. But beyond that, uh, we'll have to think about I mean, where in a couple of months, where this situation is, and do we need to do more than that? But what do you
0: think the discussion in India on the economic dimensions of this crisis? is already at a significant lag to the focus on public health. I agree with you entirely that the public health dimension is first and foremost. But given the nature of the Indian economy, with so many people working in the informal sector, uh, people do not have security of job, they do not have contracts, they do not have various kinds of you know health uh, benefits, etc., linked to their employment. Uh, the Is it really possible to say that, listen... Let's deal with the public health crisis first, and in a couple of months down the line, we will look at what needs to be done. Uh, because the government has just about only announced the prime minister said that some kind of a finance economic task force is going to be constituted and led by the finance minister. It just seems rather too slow a response to what's happening. Or am I getting it wrong?
1: We are also somewhat lagging behind on the uh, detected numbers. So maybe I mean I think we are I mean we have been a little lucky on this in the sense that it's come a little late to us than from the rest of the world and the sense of crisis and urgency is much greater there. That's one reason why we are uh, still considering there is uh, economic responses and while focusing much more on uh, what is to be done in terms of uh, preventing it and uh, dealing with it. But I want to talk a little bit about the uh, economic response to the public health crisis or the, the public health response and its economic consequences. So Uh, I mean, if you were to just think rationally about what what is going on right now, there is a virus that is transmitting and its consequence is that there is some mortality that is associated with it. Some people who get it are at risk of uh, uh, dying because of it. And in uh, trying to deal with it, you are trying to reduce the transmission. If you look at India's context, what you have is that and you look at the virus's known characteristics uh, from what is how it is kind of shown to work in other parts of of, of the world. What you see is that it disproportionately uh, creates mortality in people. I, mean, I mean, leads to mortality in people who are uh, of higher age, and that in India is a very small percentage of the population. Uh, if, you, if you want to think in a very hard-nosed manner about 6% of the population is above 65 years of age, they're at real risk and they have to focus on protecting them first. Second, uh, one more category of people who are at a, an enhanced risk are people who have some kind of respiratory disease which has been going on for a long time, for chronic di- disorders. That in India is a very big problem. So uh, we, are, we carry about a third of the disease burden of such diseases across the world even though we are less than uh, one-fifth of the global population. So that creates an enhanced risk for India. So when you're thinking about dealing with this crisis and you want to respond to it by uh, a variety of instruments, but say for simplicity sake, there are two types of instruments. One is that you want to do lockdowns of uh, economic and you want to restrict economic activity. The other instrument is, say, just testing and uh, isolating, quarantine, healthcare, that package of activities. You have to think about it rationally and say, Ki, what kind of uh, response can I give so that the, uh, the uh, mortality and morbidity costs that I'll avoid are actually uh, more than the costs that I will incur in doing all of this? So, and on that will depend a lot of hardships that come. So, if you uh, look at it, what is happening in India today, part of the uh, response that has happened is voluntary. People are themselves kind of shutting themselves in their houses and taking some preventive uh, precautions. But uh, a lot of it is also top-down. So government action is also there that you cannot do such-and-such activity, such-and-such places are shut down, entire cities are being locked down, about uh, 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 80 cities or so are in in lockdown. All these things, I hope that this is being thought through rationally, that each city there is a genuine risk perception and a reasonably rational exercise has been done about what could be the consequences in the I mean, given what the information we have? There's a lot of uncertainty, but what information we have, and can that uh, is the lockdown the right kind of measure to do to deal with that? Once you've got that balance right, that will determine the economic consequence that you actually suffer. Other than the course, global demand and all that will all all affect, but I'll come to that later. But that it's endogenous to your own policy response. So when you shut down uh, cities, they, it will lead to certain kinds of You used to see that as a cost of trying to deal with the public health crisis.
0: And- no, but let's say that that is already underway. That's now a given. Uh, I'm recording from Mumbai. Maharashtra is pretty much under a lockdown till the end of the month. Uh, perhaps that can go on for longer. A uh, lot of migrant workers from the state have left uh, to other parts of India. They've gone back to their homes. So, in a sense, we are already in a situation where government policy has, and let's say with the best intentions and the best informed uh, choice that they had, they have taken this decision. But clearly, in, in that sense, the economic consequences are already playing
1: out, right? I mean, it's it's not like that's yes. going to so, really turn up. With uh, right now, it's a shutdown of <laughs> two weeks, 10 days. And uh, we, one can argue that whether you need to compensate or think about some uh, mitigating uh, using some uh, instruments that mitigate hardship for this period? maybe I, I think you should, but it's, it's a debate one can have. But once you start talking about this as a mon- several months of uh, lockdowns and opening up, lockdowns and opening up, then you need to have a serious conversation about what is the trade-off that you're making. So right now we're talking about a week or two weeks horizon and it's just began. I mean, today was the first day when we are recording this and when there's an actual I mean, city-wide lockdown that is happening. And we don't know yet how long this lockdown will have to continue before we can seriously say that we've contained this crisis, and then we can think about what the, uh, the steps uh, are. So if we go down this path and say there's uh, several months of this process required, then we'll have to rethink whether the lockdown is the right strategy, and then we should maybe think more on the mitigation front. That's the I mean, calculation that you need to make. Right now, you're not in a position to make that calculation. You can do some short-term mitigation strategies. For, and in that, I would say that India is better off using its current cap- capabilities because I don't think in the short run you can build new capabilities. So we have schemes. We have government schemes which anyway reach uh, hundreds of millions of households. Um, uh, and uh, so there you've got a public distribution uh, system. You can top up on that. You can give more through that and be at a further subsidized rate. You've got systems for again delivery of food through the for to early, early pregnant ladies and very young children from zero to six years old, which are ICDS. You've got midday meal scheme. You can top up on that and give more through that. You've got uh, 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 social assistance pro uh, schemes like old age pension, disability pension. You can top up and maybe increase that. Give some advances uh, if if you can then you've got now a fairly robust infrastructure of bank accounts and identification and all of that. You have to think about how you deliver it because you may not want to create a situation in which delivering itself creates greater transmission, <laughs> you crowd up places and all of that. But you can respond in, in using those and infrastructure that. as well. To the extent that this crisis requires. So again, as I said, if suppose by 31st March or first week of April, you have significantly contained the whole situation and you are in control, then you just have to respond to the first part, the other part of it, which is because of the general slowdown in the global economy. There is going to be a demand <laughs> shock as far export is concerned. Investment uh, demand will also decline because of uncertainty. You will have a consumption decline because of the ongoing uncertainty and the problems of uh, of global economy. All that will have to be addressed, but we have to deal with it a little less uh, intensively compared to if this was going on for several months. That That's trade-off, right. we don't yet know about. And right. I think in India's context, it's much more difficult to make these trade-offs because we are not a $50,000 per capita income country. We are a much lower, poorer country. And anyway, our economy has been slowing down for two years. We've got uh, People have to make much more difficult decisions. And you have to be very hard-nosed about the decisions, given our demographics, given, uh, given our overall disease burden and all those things. Sure.
0: But if you can just talk about the first bit, uh, you know, expansion of, say, immediate life support, literally, through these kinds of schemes that you talked about. Uh, And in the past, you know, in this program, we've uh, discussed with you about what the fiscal situation in India is. You've always been a bit skeptical about calls for enhancing fiscal spending, because it's when you're reading that more than just putting the money out, we also need to have effective ways of using any kind of uh, fiscal stimulus. But in this case, clearly, that's not a problem. As you're saying, you know, there are ways in which we can push the money out, so to speak. But- is there fiscal bandwidth
1: yeah so on that there is very little fiscal bandwidth because we have been trying to get back to the uh, fiscal deficit target that we had set uh, under the frbm law but because the economy is uh, struggling to grow and government expenditure has been at least for the last couple of years a significant driver of uh, of growth they have I mean, government has struggled to uh, uh, maintain fiscal deficit discipline At state level, I think there is more fiscal bandwidth. So, for example, this year, on the aggregate, the states are actually budgeted to have well below uh, the the allowed level of fiscal deficit. They're supposed to have 3% is allowed, and they're budgeted to have about 2.7% of GDP. So if the states can do more, I mean, depending on the depth of the crisis, again, as I said, we don't know enough about it. If there is the depth of the crisis is much greater, we'll have to think about export, expenditure substitution. So we have to think about cutting some expenditure and uh, putting more money into these kind of measures, which is which are more to, re- to do relief for people who are suffering real hardship. Even very, I mean, unthinkable kind of things. For example, we don't think about giving pay cuts to government servants usually, or pension cuts, or uh, uh, these kind of things. But if the crisis gets really deep and prolonged, we'll have to think about these kind of Measures and, and if you look at the economic point of view, uh, that expenditure substitution will be welfare enhancing because you'll be putting in more money in the hand of people who have, who have more propensity to consume it immediately and in fact they need need to do it anyway. So uh, those kind of measures. But again, the main variable here is how do we deal with the public health crisis in a rational and I mean uh, robust way, which is keeping in mind the costs and benefits of dealing with any crisis management strategy that you have. Based on that, you will have other other consequences. To put the entire working age population uh, uh, at home by force, and that to vast majority having no formal sector employment, 90% workers in this country don't have even an an obligation to be paid one day's wage when they're fired. Exactly. And among among the rest 10%, only 5% have some kind of a contractual obligation to be paid some day's wage before they're fired. So, we are dealing not in a European and American context. The trade offs here are much more (laughs) complicated. And uh, as as this situation goes further, I think we'll have to think rationally about what kind of public health response and what kind of we can have and how can we cope with the crisis, with this challenge, without destroying our productive capacity and without having a huge economic uh, cost. You see the key variables, right? Like if you lock down, you are creating, for example, you just referred to migrant workers. Why are they going back? Because they don't have enough cash to sustain even for a f- couple of weeks, perhaps. That's true. Uh, in, in Bombay, it's an expensive city to live in. And the way it works is that India, there are more than 100 million people who have seasonal migration. They go come from, for example, Orisha to Gujarat, <laughs> Bihar, UP to Delhi and Bombay, South South Rajasthan to Gujarat, Ahmedabad and nearby areas large number of people who go and work for some time and they every week or every day some in some cases depending on the, the situation they give remedies back they don't keep money with themselves and they don't have that much luxury to write this out for months if it goes along That's so uh, we'll have to think about uh, our demographics is different we have only six percent people over 65 years of age so uh, we have to protect them specifically and that can be done through a different strategy than just locking down the entire... I mean, I'm just thinking, thinking what what we can do so that we are not destroying uh, more than we are protecting. Yeah, sure. And
0: do you think this sudden sort of drop in oil prices, which has been happening partly as a result of, I suppose, demand drop, but also because of this oil war going on between... Russia and Saudi Arabia, Uh, I've I've seen figures like saying that's going to give the government of India some 3 lakh crores or something like that in terms of uh, revenues with which, uh,
1: you know. All that is is based on assumption that economic behavior will not change because of the crisis. The crisis, I mean, we import because we use petrol and diesel. If railways are not running, what Mm -hmm. kind of saving can you have by a lower price of oil? uh if uh, cars are not running on 80 of the largest cities of the city then what kind of saving can you have plus you will have layoffs in middle east and uh, your remittance income might also suffer because of that it will, it will. If, and so i think these things are much more complicated and uh, and in the in the current situation where the, the, there is a clear disequilibrium we are not at a stage with the last few years data will help us uh project what is going to happen in this year
0: Right. I want to talk a little bit about the forward-looking aspect of it, which you said, on the assumption that this continues for even, say, a few weeks continuously, then clearly we are going to be in a very different kind of terrain. And I think there's going to be a lot of uh, ask from the government to support various kinds of businesses, whether it's small and medium enterprises or it's larger corporates. Uh, And I'd like to just talk a little bit about these two things. So uh, SMEs, I think after the demonetization shock. This is perhaps another major crisis that has hit them. And uh, I I really wonder what you think their strategies for mitigation coping with this situation are going to be because uh, as demonetization showed, you know, it's very easy to put them out of business and regrouping and getting them back on their feet is not at all easy.
1: Yeah. So um, if this crisis continues for, uh, months, uh, weeks, maybe less, but if it goes on for months and if we respond to it in this way by uh, top-down lockdown orders and we are we are very much keen to look at only one side of this, then we will see many, many bankruptcies uh, in not just in SMEs, but also other firms because uh, they may not have the <laughs> reserves to write this out. Some of them may cope by uh, cutting costs and by uh, by dealing with Layoffs and those kind of things. But uh, if you have revenue declining by a huge percentage, and if it goes on, for example, one of the largest categories of SMEs in India is uh, the restaurants, you know, restaurants and uh, small hotels and all, very I mean hundreds of thousands of them. So if they have no revenue going on, they cannot, I mean, the way they pay salaries from and where will they be able to pay rents from and all of that. So if economic value is destroyed, then Beyond the point, really, you cannot do much. What government could consider going forward is a couple of things I think are worth considering. One is that you could uh, maybe have a short period of moratorium on the bankruptcy filing process so that you get a little bit more time of a breather to deal with this uh, big exogenous shock. Uh, Some countries are considering it. We could also consider it. We have a very strict otherwise bankruptcy process. And uh, if that process is fully adhered to in this time, we will have uh, many, many more bankruptcies just clogging up the system. The other is perhaps you can consider uh, you know, providing uh, some form of bridge loans, which in an equitable manner. I don't like the business of picking and choosing sectors and firms. It uh, In our political economy, it might lead to behavior which is somewhat perverse. So I would say we should uh, create a mechanism in which a uh, but again, it will all come down to cost eventually, but for some time, maybe we will have tied over and protect some productive capacity. The key point here is that the bankruptcies, is, I mean, if, if it can be quickly resolved, somebody else takes over the firm and runs. It's just facts of the word. Somebody got unlucky they, while they were running the business. This shock hit them and they had to lose control of the firm. Lots of people, shareholders get wiped out. But in the current context, if the crisis continues, the bankruptcy resolution will be very really difficult because nobody will have the capital. Very few people have the capital to actually uh, take over and run the firm again. So it's a very unique situation in that sense, if it continues for months. Therefore, I'm saying that these kind of special dispensations will be required. Otherwise, I don't believe that the government has any business trying to protect firms from bankruptcies in uh, in a crisis, which is different from this kind of a crisis. so And then once you've given the bridge loans and all, some of them written off, they'll be NPAs and all, then you'll have to create a situation in which a couple of years, three years down the line, the fisc absorbs part of the shock.
0: That's right. And uh, this crisis is also coming for corporate India at a time when corporate borrowing, is still, especially external commercial borrowing, seems to have been on something of a high over the last few years. Mm-hmm. How do you think uh, this loss of value is going to help them cope with that particular dimension of debt servicing and ability to really stay afloat?
1: So what happens usually in a crisis where there's a significant demand shock is not just firms, also individuals who make money off firms, they will be borrowing more to tide over this period. So that is going to probably increase and I'm hoping that Government will allow more capital to flow from outside into firms to be able to tide over this period. Because especially if it, government goes on a central or state government goes on an expenditure uh, spree to respond to this crisis, they will be crowding out most of the household financial savings in India. They are already crowding out a large, I mean, lion's share of it. And if they further try to do a fiscal expansion in this context, which may be required if this persists, then. Uh, Firms should also find a way to get capital. Individuals should go find a way to get capital. We should perhaps consider lowering of capital controls and allowing more. And our current account balance right now, I mean, the situation is not bad on that front. So we we should consider um, opening up more avenues for firms to uh, and individuals to see capital from the rest of the world.
0: But at this point, we are seeing something of a flight of capital from, at least in terms of institutional investors from abroad, pulling out from India, right? Not just India, but all emerging markets.
1: Yeah, the institutional investors are pulling out. They are de-risking at, at the moment, but if uh, at some some term they will lend lend to you. And firms have a right to be able to borrow and sustain through this period. And clearly, I mean, it, it depends on the uh, lender and the borrower what terms they'll agree with. I'm talking about the regulatory restrictions on borrowing and green sure. capital from abroad. Those uh, at the moment, especially because there's a good chance that the government is going to crowd out most of, the, I mean, corner most of the household financial savings in India. In the next uh, incoming period.
0: Sure. So, yes, if you had to give the finance minister any couple of pieces of top advice in terms of what she should be thinking about when she looks at this task force to deal with this crisis, what would the top two or three policy suggestions from your side be?
1: I have two suggestions. Both of them I've already um, discussed. One, think very carefully carefully about the costs and benefits of the response strategy that you have with respect to the crisis itself. So that's not in the finance minister's domain, but she sits in the same cabinet. she should work with her other colleagues uh, about who in India's context what is the right response. The second is while trying to mitigate the hardships caused by this crisis, use your current capabilities, your schemes, the accounts and the identification system that you've built to reach directly to the households so that, you, you put money in the hands of uh, people who most need it. And the third, which is the additional, because I don't think it can be accepted, is consider very seriously uh, expenditure substitution strategies. Is it necessary for government to uh, uh, always uh, meet its promise of so-called committed expenditure on things like salaries and pensions and all of that? If the crisis deepens and we have a real once-in-a-century situation, those things also should be on the table.
0: Sure. All three sound eminently sensible to me, but I hope somebody else is also listening. Uh, Suyash, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm sure this is a continuing conversation, so we will keep returning back to these issues in the coming weeks. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Srinath.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage.